Okay, thank you very much, Franz. A very interesting topic indeed. Uh, what I'm going to begin by doing is just to lay the background uh, of the African diaspora. There have been reasons over the years as to why people have left their countries to settle in other countries, but they still wanted to be in touch with home. And over the years, it has been very difficult because the media that they were using was limited. And now, today, uh, there is a vast difference because there are so many ways and means that they can communicate with home. In fact, some of the examples that I have are such that uh, some of the information that I get, some of the breaking news that we get, uh, they come from people in the diaspora. You hear that so-and-so in your community has died and the WhatsApp is coming from England, is coming from America and so forth. That just shows that uh, our people, our brothers and sisters who have moved to other countries are still interested about what's going back home. And they also want to hear the news that is coming uh, from home. Others have gone into the diaspora to actually form media organizations that interview people back home and be the, they end up being the source of the main news that come from home. Right from the days of our liberation struggles, we had different people going outside their country. And this does not only apply to Zimbabwe, but it applies to South Africa, it applies to Mozambique, to Zimbabwe, and other countries. And people settled in other countries for many years. And their main source of information about back home would be letters, listening to shortwave radios, medium-wave radios, but over the years, uh, that has improved. In Zimbabwe, we had uh, radio stations before our independence in 1980, which were broadcasting uh, matters about Zimbabwe for the benefit of those who had moved out of Zimbabwe and had settled in neighboring countries, in borders, as well as settling in those countries as refugees. The same happened here uh, in South Africa. Back home in Zimbabwe, we hosted a lot of cadres from the ANC and the PAC who even integrated into our national stations and they were producing programs for the benefit of South Africans who were based in different parts of the country. So that is the nature of the diaspora. But it did not end with the end of colonization. Uh, it also continued because of various problems that people faced in their countries, including issues to do with uh, democracy, access to information, to do with collapsed economies and so forth. And the example that I, I have from back home, we have a lot of people who moved into South Africa from Zimbabwe when our economy started to collapse. Various reasons being given for that. The government blaming it on the land reform program that it had undertaken and uh, feel that the Western countries are causing it because of that. And others, economic commentators, political scientists, saying no, it is because of poor management of the economy, especially at a time when a huge chunk of money was, unbudgeted money, was handed over uh, to former freedom fighters and so forth. But be that as it may, a lot of people left the country uh, for South Africa, for Botswana, and the UK. And I tell you, those people are always communicating every day. They are always... Uh, telling us about what's happening back home in their families, about what's happening in the UK. And some of them have gone on to establish radio stations, websites, and so forth, 
where they are just keeping uh, in touch with home. With regards to the radio front, in Zimbabwe, we have had some radio stations being established in London by Zimbabweans who had moved to London. Uh, they were sponsored uh, through some NGOs in Europe, uh, embassies, uh, and so forth. Some of them are still uh, thriving. Others have collapsed because of a lack of sustainability. I come from a radio station called Radio Voice of the Zimbabwe, a Radio Voice of uh, the People in Zimbabwe, which was formed in 1980 after some members of the civic uh, organizations as well as uh, media practitioners felt that since our airwaves had not been opened, the state broadcaster had the monopoly and a lot of voices were being shut out uh, from the debate about the Zimbabwean story. So they formed this station and found a way of actually broadcasting back to Zimbabwe as well as into neighboring countries. And they were able to access a transmission uh, site from Radio Netherlands uh, for shortwave broadcasting. And that happened, but obviously uh, back home there were backlashes because uh, it was described as a pirate radio station meant to divide people of Zimbabwe uh, to... Uh, to initiate a regime change agenda. But that did not stop the initiators because uh, even the people began to build up, the audiences began to build up on that station because of the death of news uh, back home. The state broadcaster would only talk mainly to people in the establishment. And a lot of voices in business, a lot of voices in the civil society, and individuals who were critical not necessarily against, but just being critical of policies and so forth, were shut out. Some people would be interviewed even in the streets, but you would not see them uh, on, the, on the screen or hear them uh, on, the, uh, on the radio. So these stations came in handy because people were now able to hear different voices. And they were run on, or, run or still being run on professional lines in that they also made an effort to make sure that as they told the Zimbabwean story to the Zimbabweans as well as those in the diaspora, they made sure that they talked uh, to people in government, the ruling party, as well as those from the civil society, as well as um, the opposition political parties. Although the pattern is in such a way that you have a lot of takers from opposition parties because at one time you would not hear uh, anything about them in the state-run media, uh, except when they're being denigrated about what they're doing and so forth. So these radio stations have played that big role. I've said I belong to Radio Voice of the People. Uh, in 2002, uh, we were bombed to the ground in Harare, but we continued with our activities. It became very untenable to operate from Zimbabwe, and we brought in some staff uh, members here. We started by uh, operating from Bush House in Cape Town. We moved to Idasa House and then came back uh, towards nearer home uh, to Johannesburg, not very far from here. Uh, that's where we established ourselves. So our news was beneficial to people back home in Zimbabwe, as, as well as those who could access us in the neighboring countries on shortwave. But we also had problems with shortwave because the shortwave radios were dying. No one was manufacturing them. It was mainly FM and so forth. So, and other uh, platforms were coming on board so we made sure that we explored all available platforms that were coming on board so that would spread the message far and wide and by the way we also had an intention 
uh, and continue to have intentions of applying for licenses back home. And back home in Zimbabwe, you don't apply for a license unless the authority calls for that. And the authority went in for years without even calling for those licenses. And when we applied for licenses, uh, we went and we were interviewed three times, but we were not awarded licenses. So we continued with our alternative voice, now broadcasting, moving away from shortwave, because really it became very difficult uh, because shortwave radios were not available. So we started broadcasting on free-to-air satellite television. We put our station there, and then the signal again coming from South Africa, because back home we could not do that. It would be illegal to broadcast without a license from the Broadcasting Authority of Zimbabwe. So we're mindful of that and found other platforms that would help us to reach people back home in Zimbabwe and those in the diaspora. Then came in Facebook. We also made sure that we are integrated to that, WhatsApp and so forth. So by and large, you'll find uh, us on all those platforms that are coming up, which is why it's a pleasure to be at this conference because we continue to learn about uh, better ways and means, faster ways and means that can make us reach people at home and abroad. And by the way, even the state broadcaster uh, and other entities who are licensed uh, ahead of us in Zimbabwe, who we feel most of them are just as good as the state broadcaster because uh, of their lineage uh, and some of the pronouncements that they make in favor uh, of the status quo. So they also stream. So it doesn't mean that the voice that is going out into the diaspora, to the Zimbabweans in the UK, in South Africa, and so forth, is only coming from us, the alternative media. It's also coming from other stations that have been licensed in Zimbabwe. So the Zimbabweans have a choice uh, of listening to a variety of voices, and obviously they can tell where other voices are missing and so forth, which is what has made us continue to be relevant over the years because otherwise with the opening up of the airwaves we thought that we're doomed and that was the end of the story. In fact, we thought that we'd just get licenses and continue like someone else. But the struggle uh, still continues. Uh, I mentioned our own entity, Radio Voice of the People. There is another entity run by Zimbabweans in America called VOA Studio 7, uh, which has got a far wider reach because they broadcast both on, they continue to broadcast on shortwave medium wave, as well as with us on the free-to-air satellite called Channel Zim. A shortwave radio Africa, which was operating from London, has since closed down. We have other entities uh, in, in Zimbabwe, uh, like Radio Dialogue and Community Radio Harare, and a number of community radio initiatives that are also broadcasting in the country. Uh, and I can tell you there's a lot of feedback that we get from South Africa, because People here in South Africa are able to access that signal on their free-to-air decoders. Zambia, Botswana, Malawi, and those in the diaspora, because we stream uh, our, our, our broadcasts, they're also able to participate from Australia. They're able to participate uh, from the UK and the USA. Uh, that's our contribution in a small way, because most of these entities do not broadcast 24 hours a day. They broadcast, like we broadcast for six hours a day, uh, Voice of America, I think, is four hours a day, uh, and so forth. But the whole channel, because we've come together and shared the time on the platform, we broadcast for 24 hours. We give each other uh, time slots. That in the morning, there's radio dialogue, uh, followed by community radio Harare, followed by Pataka Nyami Nyami in Kariba, followed by Wejira in Masuingo, followed by Voice of the People, followed by uh, Studio 7. So these are initiatives that are trying 
to keep the alternative voice alive uh, like what used to happen even before we got our independence so and we try to support radio like what we've learned even at this conference that yes radio as we know it also has to be nourished by other sources to make sure that we you don't miss the people because you're following the people with your message in the past i i've been in broadcasting for the last 42 years i'm sure i can share with france here who has also been uh, around for for that time that uh, during the early 70s you would broadcast and no, people had no choice they would listen to you however boring you were they would listen to you but nowadays there's a lot of choice and people are able to to look for whatever they feel that uh, is beneficial to them so which is why there's that competition for news in fact uh, i can tell you that most of the breaking stories come from some of these sources like on whatsapp on facebook uh, and some of these initiatives i'm talking about and then later on you know you make sure that you listen to other broadcasts at home you will hear the story maybe four hours later when already it is circulated although of course there are some other dangers of citizen journalists reporting half-baked news and so forth but by and large yes that, that's what we are we are exiled we actually called us we call ourselves make exiled media because we don't broadcast from home although we feed people uh, from information from home both at home and abroad. That is the role that we are playing as exiled media in Zimbabwe. Uh, I, I, I hope I've given you a, a full picture as it were. But my colleague here is also going to go deeper about the exile, I mean the diaspora as it should be known uh, from people who left uh, Africa a long time ago, settled in different parts of the country, and they still you know, cherish their being Africans, although they don't remember whether they were captured in Ghana as slaves or whether they were captured in Senegal and so forth. But wherever they are, in terms of their music, in terms of other things, they always want to show that they are African. Yeah? Isn't it lovely, my, brother, my sister, that some of, some of them are actually ruling America? Thank you for a very wonderful introduction, John. I Um, I'm a diasporan. Let's see if this works. Yes. I'm a diasporan in the broadest sense of the word. My ancestral lines come from three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Blended, blended together in the Caribbean. Years ago, my family moved from Suriname to Holland. I was born in a white Christian town where we were the first example of a black middle-class family on its way to becoming as Dutch as possible. I was seen as a child of immigrants who would want to have her piece of the pie, meaning have a decent education and a well-paid job so as to rise up on the social economic ladder. Little did I realize then that I had every right to claim my piece of the pie not only because I was born in Holland, but also because my family has been, a has been a part of the Dutch Kingdom for centuries, ever since the African, European, and Asian ancestors made their contribution to building up the Dutch colonies as slaves, slave owners, or migrant workers. However, people in Holland know very little about what had taken place in faraway places like Suriname. They know very little about our common history and how I came to live among them with this skin color and speaking so eloquently in Dutch. 
Therefore, my multiracial background was never really valued or appreciated in society. It was seen as, a com as complex or a trap, a trap between cultures because I did not fit in anywhere. Today, I will tell you how privileged I am with my complex background and how it has shaped my work as a journalist. It was quite a challenge to function as a diasporan in a formal westernized setting, where one, when one has to constantly deal with misconceptions, outdated frameworks and assumptions about minorities. During my last years in the Dutch media industry, I was an Africa specialist in major newsrooms for the National News Channel. It was not easy to convince senior producers when choosing different angles or voices in a news story. At the same time, I had to build up my own understanding of the mother continent. My best source was the African diaspora in Holland. Throughout the years, I've met students, artists, writers, academics, local politicians, ent entrepreneurs, and also fellow media workers who formed my viewpoint tremendously. I learned through them about the significance of South Sudan's independence, the influence of Fela Kuti's Afrobeats, and the change makers among the upcoming black generation. You could not label these rich sources with words like immigrant, refugee, or poor. They represented much more than that. They represent human strength. Not everybody in the media houses I worked for had a narrow-minded way of thinking. There was always a colleague or even a director who understood why I tried to open up people's minds to, view, to the viewpoint of the diasporan on issues that concerned the black communities especially. I could always count on their support and their encouragement to go beyond the standards in journalism. I began to address racial issues in societies. It is worth noting that the largest section of Dutch media is reluctant to take on stories that spoke about self-reflection and self-criticism. They did not want to end up in ugly discussions about race, in where, the white people, in where white people became the perpetrators and black people the victims. They did not see beyond the duality of good and bad, except for some outlets, like the New Liefde, an opinion magazine that, that unfortunately no longer ex exists. I know the chief editor from college. I knew the chief editor from college. We were from the same generation of journalists. She asked me, back then to analyze the race debate that was heating up during the 150th commemoration of the abolishment of slavery, which the black community in Holland celebrates tomorrow, by the way, the 1st of July. It became the longest and most profound story I have ever done as a writer. I talked about a healing process that we, black and white, are going through at the moment, in where all the dirt and wounds of the past were exposed. Nobody in society could run away from that. My essay got very little attention, despite the bravery of my chief editor. It made me wonder if I was working for the right public. It was at the Africa desk at Radio Netherlands Worldwide that I started working for an African audience with great joy. I did, reporting, I did reporting and documentaries for shows like Bridges with Africa and Africa in Progress. Beautiful programs in where the listener was taken around the continent. 
Also, the newsrooms at R&W were very diverse, with English and French-speaking journalists from various backgrounds. During that period, I explored my newfound audience and began to understand the common experience of the African diaspora on a global scale. There were many moments that I felt strongly connected to Africans and an African descendants and African descendants from other European countries, as well as the United States and the Caribbean. With our common thoughts and ideas, we wanted to break down barriers and break through ceilings. There was so much we could do together in equal partnership. So when I left for a month to work in Sierra Leone, I hooked up with a local radio station, Cotton Tree News, in Freetown. I started working with one of the junior reporters on the Charles Taylor case that was about to conclude. A young reporter became my translator, my stringer, and my protege. Indeed, we worked on an equal level. Our reports for RNW were put on air, attributed both our names, attributed to both our names. Our friendship exceeded my time in Switzerland. We keep in touch through the internet, and today he works as a radio trainer in Juba. This is just one example out of many strong connections I found within the African diaspora. But also the wonderful stories I had done for Air and W were about to end. Despite the good attentions of the producers, there was a distance between the media house, its audience, and me. The dominant view remained that the work is about the Dutchman who wanted something with Africa. Of course, a look at the history of R&W shows that the agenda of the government rules. The Minister for Development finances the whole enterprise. Conversations about their programs are done with state officials and not with the African listeners. Even the workers at R&W would sometimes wonder if the many FM stations around the continent really played our shows on air. Every week, a new package of radio material would arrive for the so-called local partners. But can you really speak of partnership when a newsroom in Holland mainly decides the content, where only a few Africans work and only a few people had actually been on the continent? My travel to Sierra Leone was entirely my initiative and also funded by myself. Media houses in Holland would rarely encourage collaborations like that because they simply don't believe in it. Too many unreliable people and uncertain working conditions in those faraway places. Only as a freelancer I could take on jobs like that one, and to be honest, I also prefer it that way. The freedom... Oh, did I... Yeah. The freedom to travel, make my stories, and build up a network of African diasporas. Africa diaspora means everything to me. It has even made me decide to pack my bags and move to a country in the tropics where I could go to work every day wearing a summer, a summer dress. A country with enough press freedom and a vibrant media to innovate and to take my profession to another level. A country that could reconnect me with my undefined African roots. A country like Ghana. Of course, it took me three years to make a decision like that to leave the comfort of Holland and choose to stay in a so-called third-world country where I would live on a local salary in a society with all its difficulties, such as bad transportation, an unstable currency, everyday corruption, and many prejudices about foreigners. It is absolutely, with no doubt, the most challenging endeavor I've ever took in my life. 
and therefore also the most satisfying one. If I look back at those 15 years in the Dutch media industry, I can say that, I, that it has led to this major step. If I really want to steer things up, be closely connected with my audience, if I really want to understand my African identity and tell stories from a broader perspective, then I need to be in this society. I need to experience the good and the bad of it and find the underlying, underlying meaning of it. So I found a job at a homegrown, homegrown Ghanaian institution, the African University College of Communications, where I run the radio studio and teach broadcast journalism. My new environment also gave birth to a series of articles and columns for a popular magazine in Suriname, Parboda. In there, I wrote about Ghana. In the eyes of the ordinary Surinamese people, Ghana is like all the other African countries, poor and corrupt. To change a dominant cons concept like this, like that, takes time. All that they know are the images in the global media. That is where my role as a journalist from, from and for the diaspora comes in. Not by simply drawing positive images of the society, but by placing, but by placing Africans in a human perspective in where we can relate to one and another. I will come with a nice illustra illustration for that one. It has been said that during the transatlantic slave trade, a lot of Africans were end who ended up in Suriname came from the Gold Coast. Therefore, the Afro-Surinamese people often look upon the Ashanti kings as the ones who sold their own brothers and sisters. I have witnessed an emotional debate among people from the Caribbean who forced a Ghanaian journalist to take on responsibility for what happened during the colonial period. It was just another example of how the past still hunts us down. We are absolutely not done with it. In response, I wrote in Parabodo about one of the slave forts at the Gold Coast that used to be a Dutch headquarter. I talked about war captives torn apart families, and how the practice of slavery became a racial matter with the arrival of the Europeans. I use myself as an eyewitness in these stories to create historical awareness about our African roots. As a journalist from the African diaspora, you are constantly looking for comparisons and communalities. So after two years working and living in Ghana, I can honestly say that I don't regret replacing the bigger news platforms for the smaller local media. I learned more about making radio because there, there we have to build everything up from scratch. When I started in 2014, the campus broadcasting was dead. Nothing was going on anymore. My predecessor resigned unex unexpectedly and handed over nothing more than the keys of the studio to me. The first few months, I pushed with another passionate journalism lecturer to redo the whole place. It took us a lot of talking and convincing. To, uh, it took us a lot of talking and convincing the authorities for a substantial investment to be made in the studio. In the end, we got money for at least two new microphones, a working console, and new carpet and paint. I had to operate as a technician and double as a sound engineer, something I had never done before in my career as a journalist. Our only technical support was the IT department and a temporary satellite builder from outside campus. Our work paid off. 
It paid off so well that the school did not think we needed any more investments. And without a frequency, it was hard to make another stand. So what do you do? We went online and started broadcasting in the school's hallway, hallways and, and restaurant. With the help of RadioKit, a Polish software specialist in radio technology, we now have our own website with a fancy podcast gallery and almost 800 Facebook followers. These experiences in the radio field are priceless, especially for somebody coming from a privileged background like Holland, where everything is taken care of and nobody is really forced to be innovative or come up with new ideas. I absolutely begin to develop a new passion for community radio stations. I want to create one out of our own campus, uh, own campus studio at AUCC, precisely because commercial broadcasting is growing fast in Ghana. A majority of 70% of radio is commercial, probably because that's where all the money is. Don't think there's anything wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with money, just as long as it does not become more important than setting up a platform where listeners can get involved, speak their mind, and come up together with new ways to deal with issues in society. My work has become more and more about the medium itself, using radio as a tool to build up a community, consciously and deliberately. For me, it's more than just a source of information. With strong communities, you build strong regions, and with strong regions, you build a nation. I think with these kinds of aspirations, I'm finally at the right place. At the school where I work, I teach my students basic skills in broadcast journalism. But what I find even more important is that I create a learning environment for them where they can express themselves. To develop their talents and become more aware of what it is that they want to do in the media industry. Sometimes I have to push them hard and sometimes I have to just let them play around. I've put their thinking process in the center of our programs and this, is, this has already led to some lively podcasts. I also strongly believe that the formation of a community goes beyond an institution or a particular location. We have become virtual communities. The, the African diaspora is a perfect example of that. We are working towards a culture of world citizenship where we can stay and work at various places where you form alliances and bridges between different countries and continents. I know a lot of people who share the same view and see the world as their home. The stories I make for media in Ghana, Holland and Suriname become more and more about the connection between these three different countries I got to know so well. I try to form a triangle between them and, and, where I compare, and where I compare, critique and create new cultural concepts for our changing societies. Somehow it's more often the younger generation with whom I share these ideas. They already carry that seed of world citizenship in them. I want to end my presentation with a quote from a renowned philosopher and writer, Stephen Biko. The oneness of a community is at the heart of our culture. We regard our living together as a deliberate act of God to make us a community of brothers and sisters, jointly involved in the quest for an answer to the varied problems of life. Thank you very much. Just to conclude, two sentences. <laughs> if not one, uh, that's one already gone. <laughs>
the experience that we've had, uh, I've attended quite a number of what are called uh, exiled media conferences in Hungary, Thailand, Yen Johannesburg, uh, in London, and so forth. You know, we're quite a number of us from Asia, Africa, and Europe, especially Eastern Europe. And we've seen the numbers dwindling, and some of us remaining behind. We've seen our colleagues going back to Myanmar uh, to, uh, you know, to open up radio stations. Some of our colleagues going to South Sudan uh, to open up their radio stations uh, and so forth. It has been a wonderful experience, and we look forward uh, to a much more inclusive uh, licensing regime back in our country. Uh, <laughs> okay. I appreciate the fact that uh, he talks about uh, them being an alternative uh, voice uh, from uh, the voice that is in Zimbabwe. Coincidentally, I come from Zimbabwe. I just wanted to find out uh, the, the kind of challenges that they face in terms of uh, authenticating uh, some of their stories, especially news when you are working from away from home. The, the information is coming from home, from professional journalists, and we... We practice professional journalism. We are members of the Voluntary Media Council of Zimbabwe. Uh, we abide by the code of conduct of the Voluntary Media Council of Zimbabwe. Once or twice we've been reigned before the, the council when we, we published stories that were not balanced. So we always make sure that we're not embarrassed by having ourselves being published in the VMCZ report that we are in an unbalanced station. We still want to remain credible. I worked for the state broadcaster for 28 years. Uh, they, they, of course, it was a, a, a government station, but it allowed us a lot of freedom. It wasn't as strict as it was uh, right now in terms of uh, shutting out a number of voices. Uh, and I still want to retain that, free, uh, that professionalism uh, so that you can also hire me at VAU. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much.